praise God that even in the times when it feels like there's nothing else we can bring, that we can still bring a hallelujah, right? And amen. We praise God in every circumstance. We thank Him in every circumstance. And uh, I want to thank you all for praying for my grandfather this week. I know that several of you have contacted me, reached out, let me know that you're praying for him. And uh, wow, our family is just incredibly grateful um, for your prayers and most importantly for, for God answering those prayers in the way that we were hoping uh, that my grandfather, 91, uh, made it through surgery uh, and still has a long way to go on his recovery, but uh, amazing, really. You know, um, for those who don't know, he, he had a, an aneurysm in his leg um, and had to have surgery to have his leg removed from above the knee this week. At 91, Korean War vet, um, just an amazing man, loves the Lord, and, uh, and had a chance to video chat with him yesterday. Uh, he is, uh, he's praising God and uh, in all circumstances, you know. He's not praising God for the circumstance, but he is praising God in uh, these challenging circumstances. So just thankful for him and thankful for you for praying. So, well, speaking of prayer, would you join me in prayer before we jump into God's word? Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for this day. We're thankful for the incredible blessings that you've poured out on our lives. And we'll thank you again and again with a heart that cries out, hallelujah. You are so good to us, and we have so much to be grateful for. The fact of the matter is, Lord, we are all here today. We're alive, and you've given us another opportunity to reflect your glory in this world. And God, we pray that today you would be honored in our lives. And whether we're going through a difficult season or maybe, maybe the best season of our lives, God, we pray that, that our hearts would continue to cry out hallelujah and that we would continue to thank you for each and every blessing that you've poured on our lives. And God, we pray that you would use us to build your kingdom here on earth. Grow us, Lord, and be glorified in us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you have your Bible with you, please turn with me to Genesis chapter 37. Genesis chapter 37, we're going to be continuing our study this morning on the life of Joseph. And you may recall that last week, as we left off in verse 17, Joseph is on a journey to find his 10 older brothers who had taken their flocks roughly 50 miles away from home to graze in the fields near Shechem. And apparently, they have been gone long enough that their father is concerned. So he has sent his beloved son, Joseph, to go and find them and then to bring back word. Now, as I mentioned last week, it is a little puzzling that Jacob would even send his son, Joseph, on a mission like this. Because not only would he be traveling for days by himself and facing the normal dangers of you know, wild animals or robbers, uh, things like that, but on top of that, his mission is to go and find his 10 older brothers who, as we've discovered, hate him like, 
more than anything else, right? They, I mean, hate is not strong enough a word to describe how his brothers, you know, feel about him. The verse four, I think it was, said that they, they could not even speak peacefully to him. They, they couldn't muster up a shalom to their brother Joseph. And as we've been studying this chapter, we have discovered that there are a few reasons for Joseph's brothers hating him so much. First of all, their father Jacob has created a a breeding ground for hostility between his sons. For 17 years, Joseph's brothers have watched as their father has, has showed Joseph and his mother Rachel preferential treatment and and special affection, even going so far as to give uh, Joseph a special coat, this colorful, ornamental, this long-sleeved coat, which signified that Joseph was the primary heir over all of his brothers. And then, to make matters worse, Joseph has had a couple of dreams. You remember those dreams? Dreams where his brothers and his family are all bowing down to Joseph. And for reasons that are unexplained in the text, Joseph decides that he's going to share these dreams with his brothers. And as you can imagine, this only caused them to hate him even more. They probably thought that Joseph was pretty smug, don't you think? As I mentioned last week, this family was a ticking time bomb just waiting to explode. Nevertheless, Jacob is concerned enough about the well-being of his older sons that he sends his beloved son Joseph to go out and find them. But as you may recall from last week, when Joseph arrives in Shechem, he gets there where his brothers are supposed to be with the flocks, they are nowhere to be found, right? And the text actually says that Joseph was wandering around in the fields. Can you picture Joseph like wandering in the fields around Shechem? He's like, I don't, I don't have a clue. They're supposed to be here in Shechem. I've looked in every field and I can't find them. And then lo and behold, a, a mystery man shows up and tells Joseph that he has overheard that his brothers have gone on to Dothan. So the mystery man shows up. Joseph says, great, I guess I'm not going back home. I'm headed now to Dothan. And so in verse 17, where we left off last week, we saw that Joseph went after his brothers and he found them at Dothan. So Joseph, he is, he's intent on accomplishing the mission that his dad has given him. So he's left Shechem and he's now heading another day's journey uh, to Dothan, which is approximately 15 more miles north of Shechem. And as you look at the uh, aerial picture that I put on the, uh, on the screen there, and, uh, in the circle is Dothan. That's the ancient tell uh, of Dothan. And I want you to notice what surround is, uh, surrounds that ancient city. Uh, notice the, all the valleys. Do you see them? Those valleys play a really significant role in our understanding of this story. So Joseph is on his way to Dothan, and he has no idea what's about to happen to him, right? He has no idea. He just thinks he's going on this mission for his dad. 
But Joseph, as we know, because we've read the story perhaps, we know that he's about to experience emotional pain and feelings of rejection on a level that is really quite difficult for us to even comprehend. He's about to experience what will appear to be the shattering of those dreams, right? We know that this is what's about to happen, but Joseph's dreams are not crushed, are they? They're not. In fact, Joseph's dreams are on their way to being fulfilled. God is going to take the the sinful actions that are going to be carried out by Joseph's brothers, and he's going to use them to accomplish his will and his plans for Joseph's life. See, the story of Joseph highlights what, what we refer to as the providence of God. The story of Joseph's life highlights the way that the sovereign God of the universe works in and through the details of our lives in order to accomplish his will and his purposes. And when we talk about the providence of God, I think it's important, at least for me, to distinguish that, that sometimes God intervenes in, in supernatural ways. We call those miracles, right? You think about when Moses is taking the Egyptians and they're fleeing, not the Egyptians, the Israelites, and they're fleeing from Egypt, right? And what does God do? He parts the Red Sea, right? That is a miraculous event where the hand of God intervenes and says, my will be done, right? Pharaoh is not going to capture these Israelites. They are going to be free. But when we talk about the providence of God, we recognize that God doesn't just work in the miraculous events of our lives. God also works in what would be the seemingly mundane parts of our lives to accomplish His will and His purposes. God is always, always working. He is always in control. As we sing often here in the song Waymaker, even when I don't see it, you're working. Even when I don't feel it, you're working. You never stop. You never stop working. God is working providentially in the circumstances of Joseph's life to bring about his desired will and his desired purposes. And he does the same thing in our lives as well. So let's continue now in uh, Luke, uh, not Luke, (laughs) Genesis chapter 30. Luke is coming. We're going to get there eventually. Um, Actually, that is hopefully the next series we're going to look at. Um, But no, we're going to pick up our story in Genesis chapter 37, uh, beginning in verse 18, as Joseph is now about to arrive in Dothan. Verse 18 says this, they saw him from afar. And before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. Joseph's brothers have seen him coming from a distance. Now, the topography, as I said, is really important to the understanding of this story. With its wide, wide valleys, Joseph's brothers would have been able to see him coming from miles and miles away, especially since Joseph is wearing his long and beautiful coat of many colors that dad has given to him. So I want you to picture this scene. Joseph has now been traveling for days, right? 
And he's in search of of his brothers. And as he's nearing Dothan, he looks across the valley and he sees his brothers and their flocks off in the distance. He probably saw them maybe before they saw him. And in my mind, I imagine Joseph sighing a huge sigh of relief, right? He's finally found these brothers that he's been sent out to look for. He thought he was going to find them in Shechem, but they were nowhere to be found. So he goes on now to Dothan, and when he finally sees them, he's like, ah, finally, there they are. So this is good news, right? Because now I'm going to be able to go find out how they're doing, and I can bring back word to dad and let him know what's going on. In my mind, I imagine Joseph maybe even feeling a sense of, of joy, Maybe a smile came across his face in that moment. You know, the, the thought that I'm going to accomplish the mission that dad gave me to do. And so Joseph, he sees his brothers in the distance and he continues to make his way towards them. I don't know. Maybe he picked up the pace a little. Maybe he started to jog. Um, I wouldn't. Uh, I would walk. Um, but maybe he was a runner. Maybe he said, I'm going to run up and, and, and greet my brothers. But the text tells us that Joseph's brothers have also seen him coming from a distance. First, just a little speck right on the horizon. But as he gets closer, they realize who it was that was coming towards them. When when Joseph's brothers see that fancy, beautiful coat, their hatred immediately boils over into rage and they quickly formulate a plan to kill their brother. Now, I want you to keep in mind that Joseph's brothers had no idea that their father was going to send Joseph to find them, right? So one minute, you know, they're not expecting to see Joseph, and so one minute, they're, they're sitting out there you know, together talking, you know, whatever shepherds do, watching their sheep and telling stories. I don't know. They're out there together one minute, and then they look up, and they see a speck coming towards them, and they realize it's Joseph. And the next minute, what are they doing? They are formulating a plan to take the blood, the life of their brother, Joseph. In a matter of moments, they've gone from zero to 100, right? Brothers and sisters, how does that happen? How does that happen? We talked about it last week, didn't we? It happens when we fail to deal with the sins of the heart. Jacob's brothers have not addressed the sins of envy and malice. They have not addressed the hate that has developed in their hearts over the last 17 years. And brothers and sisters, it has consumed them, hasn't it? Joseph's brothers are ready to commit the act of murder because in their hearts, they had already murdered Joseph long ago. The only thing that they were lacking was the opportunity. And now, the opportunity was right in front of them. Joseph was 65 miles away from home, and daddy is nowhere nearby to protect him. I mentioned this last week, but it's the same way for for other sins as well, isn't it? It's very rare, very rare for someone to just wake up one day and decide, 
today is a good day to have an affair, right? I have a very committed, everything is great in my marriage, but today is a good day to have an affair, to go out and to commit adultery. No, it's almost always a result of an unaddressed sin of the heart, isn't it? That's why Jesus said that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart, Matthew chapter 5. That's why in Matthew chapter 5, we talked about it again last week, that anybody who's angry with his brother has already murdered him in their heart. You see, when, when you've already committed a sin in your heart, it is significantly easier to take the next step, isn't it? The only thing that's missing is opportunity. And Joseph's brothers have, have rehearsed Joseph's death over and over in their minds. They just need an opportunity. As Warren Wiersbe says, the combination of hatred and envy is lethal. It simmers in the heart and it waits for the spark that will set off the explosion. And that's exactly where Joseph's brothers find themselves here in Dothan. Joseph's arrival is the spark that is going to set off the explosion. Verse 19 says this, they said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. Can you hear? Can you hear the malice? Can you hear the sarcasm in, in their voice? Look who's coming. It's Mr. Dreamer, right? Here comes Mr. Dreamer. Mr. Everybody bow down to me. We'll see what happens when Mr. Perfect is six feet under. Let's see what happens to those, to those dreams. You see, in their minds, there is absolutely no way whatsoever that they are ever going to bow down to Joseph, right? There is no way that they're going to allow Ju uh, Joseph to rule over them. And they're willing and ready to murder him to make sure that Joseph's dreams never come true. And they would have murdered him on arrival, had it not been for his oldest brother, Reuben. Reuben. Verse 21. When Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him, so that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. Well, apparently, Reuben is having second thoughts uh, about this plan. And Reuben is actually very quickly formulating a plan of his own. Reuben, the, the oldest son of Jacob, is, is trying to come up with a plan where he can buy some time and then rescue Joseph and bring him back to their father. And this is actually quite fascinating because Reuben isn't exactly known as the guy who, quote unquote, does the right thing. I don't know if you remember from a few weeks ago, but Reuben 
Reuben is the oldest uh, son of Jacob who slept with his father's concubine. Not exactly a, a model of morality here. And maybe, just maybe, Reuben now in this moment is saying, hey, here's an opportunity where I can maybe get back into good favor with my dad. What if I rescue Joseph, his favorite son? Maybe dad will let me back in. Or maybe, honestly, maybe Reuben is trying to do the right thing. But whatever his motivation might have been, Reuben says to his brothers, listen, guys, we can get rid of Joseph without getting our hands all covered with blood. We don't actually have to kill him. We could just leave him in a pit, right? We'll tell dad he was mauled by wild animals. It's going to be a lot less messy, right? And wouldn't you know it, wouldn't you know it? Not only did a mystery man show up intervening in Joseph's life, but now Reuben shows up, and wouldn't you know it, his brothers listened to him. They did it. Whatever Reuben's motivation was, once again, we can see the providence of God at work directing Joseph's life. His brothers are ready to kill him, right? As soon as he gets here, we're going to kill him. And then God works through Reuben's suggestion and spares Joseph's life. Verse 23, so when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore. And they took him and they threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then get this, verse 25, then they sat down to eat. <laughs> Can you imagine? So much, for a, so much for a warm welcome, right? Yeah, no hugs around here for Joseph. What's the first thing that Joseph's brothers do when Joseph arrives? They strip him of his robe. They rip that robe right off his back. This, this robe was the symbol of Joseph's position. This robe was a constant reminder of their father's obvious favoritism. And I believe that they probably hated that robe almost as much as they hated Joseph. And so after they stripped him of his robe, they threw him in a pit, as Reuben you know, had suggested. And it was an empty pit, the text says, where there was no water. It, it was a cistern. It was a deep hole that would have been, you know, hand chiseled out of the bedrock as a place to collect rainwater. Now, while I was in Israel, I had the opportunity to see and to, to walk through many of these water cisterns. And some of them are, are, are jaw-droppingly impressive, they are massive, massive cisterns with tunnels deep below the surface. Take, for example, the cisterns that are beneath uh, uh, Tel Beersheba, uh, which is Beersheba in the, in the Old Testament. Those cisterns beneath Beersheba can hold roughly 185,000 gallons of water. That, that's a lot of water, right? Others, of course, are significantly smaller and, and more temporary. 
They would be placed out in the fields, but they were still deep enough to require ropes in order to draw the water out. And the text says that Joseph's brothers have tossed Joseph into a pit, a dry cistern. And then it says that they sat down to eat. (laughs) How cold and how callous does your heart have to become in order for you to throw your brother in a pit and then sit down to eat lunch while his cries for help are echoing in your ears. Because that's exactly what happened. As Joseph's brothers were eating their lunch, their 17-year-old brother was crying out for help. And the text doesn't say it here, but in Genesis chapter 42, verse 21, which we're going to get to obviously several weeks from now, But when Joseph's brothers find themselves in Egypt and they found themselves in a heap of trouble, this is what they said. They said, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. You know, far beyond the physical pain that Joseph was enduring as his brothers stripped him of his coat and tossed him in in the pit. Joseph was experiencing an anguish of his soul. He was begging for his life, crying out to his brothers, right? Don't do this, right? Please don't do this. Have mercy on me. Save me. But Joseph's cries fell on deaf ears, right? His brothers would not listen. Verse 25 says, Then they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh. They're on their way to carry it down to Egypt. So as Joseph's brothers are eating their lunch and they're ignoring the desperate pleas that are rising up from the cistern, they look up, and they see a caravan of Ishmaelites on their way to Egypt. Now, this valley of Dothan was one of the primary trade routes that connected traders from the east to the land of Egypt. And they would cross through the valley as they made their way over to the coastal plains along the Mediterranean, and then they would head south to Egypt. Much, much easier travel than if you were to head through the highlands of, of Judah in the middle of Israel. Now, the text says in verse 25 that these were Ishmaelites. But when we get to verse 28, they're referred to as Midianites. So, which is it? Are they Ishmaelites or are they Midianites? Well, here's what what you need to know. Both the Ishmaelites and the Midianites were descendants of Abraham. Ishmael was the son of Hagar, and Midian was one of the sons of Keturah. And in Genesis chapter 25, we're told that before Abraham died, he gave all that he had to the son of promise, to to Isaac, the son that was born to him through Sarah. But for the rest of his sons, he didn't send them away empty-handed, but he did send them away. He gave them each gifts 
from what he had, and then he sent them away from Canaan, away from his son Isaac, to live in the east. And so by the time of Joseph, the term Ishmaelites had become more of a general term for any of these people groups who lived in the east, whereas the term Midianites would have been a more more narrowly defined uh, description of these travelers as descendants of Midian. So as they see them coming from a distance, they say, look, here comes some Ishmaelite traders. Once they get closer, they realize that these are specifically Midianite traders. So Joseph's brothers are eating their lunch, and they look up, and they see them coming. They're traveling there. They've got bombs. They've got spices, and they're making their way to Egypt. And in verse 26, we read that, Then Judah, uh, Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let, us not, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. How kind, <laughs> right? And his brothers listened to him. When Judah sees the caravan coming his way, he comes up with a new plan. So Judah says to his brothers, guys, we can still get rid of Joseph, but we can also make a little bit of money while we're doing it, right? Let's sell him to the Ishmaelites as a slave. They'll take him down to Egypt, and Joseph will never be seen again. We'll we'll finally be rid of him, and we'll have a few bucks in our bank account, right? This is good. And wouldn't you know it, wouldn't you know it, his brothers listened to him. Once again, the hand of God is directing Joseph's life. First, God spared his life through Reuben's suggestion, right? Not to, you know, not to kill him, but just to toss him in the pit. Now God spares his life through Judah's suggestion to sell him as a slave. Brothers and sisters, God is in control, isn't he? The providence of God is on full display in the story of Joseph's life. As these Ishmaelite traders are arriving now at just the right time, right? Just the right time they show up. Now, I do want to make something clear, however. Just because God is using the sinful actions of Joseph's brothers, it does not mean that what they are doing is okay. We think, well, hey, it's God's will, right? Right? They're perfectly justified in their behavior. No, that is not true. What they are doing is despicable, right? What they're doing is wrong. What they're doing is sinful, amen? This is sinful, sinful behavior. But God is able to providentially use these sinful behaviors, these circumstances to accomplish His will and His purposes, And one of the places that we see this most clearly is in the account of Jesus' betrayal by his close friend, Judas, right? Which, by the way, is another one of the parallels between Joseph's life and the life of Jesus. Joseph's brothers are about to betray their brother uh, to the Ishmaelites for, for 20 shekels of silver. Judas, one of Jesus' disciples, is going to betray him for 30 
pieces of silver. But listen to what Jesus says um, about his being betrayed in Matthew chapter 26, verse 24. Jesus said this, the son of man goes as it is written of him. Oh, this is going to happen just like it has been written. But woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. Notice what Jesus is saying here. Just because just because God is able to use our sinful decisions to accomplish his purposes does not mean that our sinful decisions are okay or that we are free from the consequences of those decisions. It's been said that divine sovereignty does not eliminate human responsibility. God is working in Joseph's life, but Joseph's brother's are still responsible for their sinful actions. And the same is true for you and for me. Well, verse 28 says, Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up, and they lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. Joseph's brothers have sold their brother for 20 shekels of silver. Just actually, what is it? It's two shekels each, right? When you divide it between 10 brothers. Some commentators say that this was the going rate for a handicapped slave at that time. What an emotional, emotional scene this must have been. Joseph is begging his brothers not to go through with this. The emotional pain would have been written all over Joseph's face, right? As he was bound by these Midianite traders and dragged off to Egypt. I think sometimes, at least for me, as I read through a passage like this, I miss the fact that these are real people with real emotions. And if you picture anything less than Joseph probably with tears welling up in his eyes, pain all over his face, his body being bound in maybe ropes and being dragged off along with spices and and, and balms to head to Egypt. Property now to be sold for a few extra bucks. If you picture it just as a calm transaction, you're wrong. You're wrong. This would have been an emotionally charged exchange, which only for me serves to highlight just how calloused and how cruel his brothers had become. Can you imagine the pain that Joseph's going through? Can you imagine the fears that that are running through his mind, the questions that he must have been wrestling with? What is going on? What just happened? I'm just here to check and see if they're okay, and all of a sudden I am bound in ropes and being dragged off to, to Egypt? What is going on here? Where am I going? What's going to become of me now? What about my father? Oh, my dear, dear father. What is this going to do to him? And I can tell you that any thoughts of his dreams coming true must have felt shattered there in his mind along with his broken heart. But God's not done, is he? This isn't the end of the story, is it? Joseph doesn't know it yet. 
and his brothers certainly don't know it yet. They think, whew, there's no way we'll ever have to deal with Joseph again. Wow, do they have a surprise coming to them. God is using every detail to bring Joseph's dreams to reality, isn't he? Verse 29 says, when Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and he returned to his brothers and said, the boy is gone. And I, where will I go? Well, apparently at some point after putting Joseph in the pit, Reuben gives himself a pat on the back that he's saved Joseph's life for the moment. And he's gone off. He's wandered off. Reuben is not around when this whole transaction with the Midianites takes place. You know, perhaps, maybe, maybe Reuben couldn't stand the sound of Joseph's cries rising up from the pit. He's like, I can't listen to this. I got, I got to go for a walk, right? Or maybe Reuben just needs some time to clear his head and to think like, how in the world am I going to rescue Joseph out of that pit and get out of here with my other nine brothers, you know, chasing me from behind? How am I going to get Joseph back to dad? I don't know. But he wasn't there when the Midianites came. But when he returns, he finds Joseph gone, and immediately he tears his clothes, which was a sign of, of grief, right? He says, where am I going to go? Oh, my goodness, what am I going to do? How am I ever going to show myself before dad ever again? He already hates me because of what I did with, with Bilhah, right? Now, I'm the oldest son. I'm the one who's responsible for taking care of Joseph, and Joseph is gone? Listen, I think, I think Reuben's grief was probably sincere, but I also think it was more about him than it was about Joseph or about his father. And the reason I believe that is because Reuben is going to become an active participant in the deception that follows. Verse 31, then they took Joseph's robe and they slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, this we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and he said, it is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Apparently, the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree. Jacob, Jacob, this is the one who deceived his own father, Isaac, in order to steal his brother Esau's birth, uh, right, and his blessing is now being deceived by his own sons. But I got to tell you, this is deception on a whole other level, isn't it? Joseph's brothers have not only tricked their father into believing that his beloved son Joseph is dead, but they have done it in a way that would have caused Jacob to wrestle with feelings of responsibility for his own son's death. After all, it was Jacob's idea to send Joseph on this journey anyway, wasn't it? Jacob must have been plagued with if-onlys, don't you think? 
If only he had kept Joseph safe with him back home, right? If only he had thought to send someone with Joseph to protect him. If only, if only, if only. If only he knew the truth, right? Verse 34 says, Then Jacob tore his garments, and he put sackcloth on his loins, and he mourned for his son many days. This right here just gets me. Verse 35, And all his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted, and he said, No, I will go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. I'll go down to Sheol, the grave. I will go down to the grave mourning the death of my beloved Joseph. Just allow this to sink in. For two shekels of silver, two shekels of silver, Joseph's brothers listened to their own father crying himself to sleep night after night. For two shekels of silver, they put their father through a living nightmare. And get this, the text says that they even made attempts to comfort him. Can you imagine the hypocrisy of that? Knowing full well that the thing that would restore their father's joy was still available. Their brother was alive, and they knew it. Their, their brother was in Egypt. And do you think for a moment, if they'd said, Dad, we've done an awful thing, do you think for a moment that Jacob wouldn't have packed up the bags and took off for Egypt to redeem his son? They knew how to bring their father comfort, but instead, they played this ruse, right? Hypocrisy feigning real interest in bringing their father comfort. He was alive and they knew it full well. Verse 36 says, Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Joseph is now in Egypt. He's right where God wants him. And in a few weeks, we're going to continue Joseph's story. But for today, I want to close with just a few final thoughts. In Psalm chapter 105, the psalmist mentions Joseph. And he mentions the way that God was the one who was directing Joseph's life. I encourage you to read all of Psalm 105 uh, this week. But I just want to read two verses. Psalm 105, verses 16 and 17, the psalmist says, When he, God, summoned a famine on the land and broke all supply of bread, he had sent a man ahead of them. Ahead of who? Ahead of the family of Jacob, Israel. God had sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. You know, Joseph's brothers may have been the ones who sold their brother as a slave, 
But God's word tells us that God sent Joseph there ahead of them. Joseph's dreams may have seemed like they were dashed, but God is working in and through all of these circumstances, and Joseph's dreams are well on their way to being fulfilled. And I want to emphasize that because I feel like for me personally, so often when things aren't going well, when things hurt and we experience pains in our lives, it's easy to think that I'm not in God's will any longer, right? It's not true. It's not true at all. It might just be that the pain as difficult it is, is a huge part of what God is doing to bring about His will for your life and for His glory. It doesn't make the pain less painful, right? But at least the pain has a purpose. F.B. Meyer wrote the following words about the way that Joseph must have been feeling as he was dragged off to Egypt as a slave. He says this, little did he think then that hereafter he should look back on that day as one of the most gracious links in a chain of loving providences. God did send me here before you. He said, be not grieved nor angry with yourselves. God did send me here before you. It is very sweet as life passes by to be able to look back on dark and mysterious events, and to trace the hand of God where we once saw only the malice and cruelty of man. Brothers and sisters, God is always working. And I don't know all of the details of all of the trials that you may be going through, but I do know, I do know that God is with you. And I do believe that He will use these trials for our growth, and for His glory. And by God's grace, we too will be able to look back on dark and mysterious events and be able to trace the hand of God where we once only saw the malice and the cruelty of man. Amen? Amen. Would you uh, join me in prayer as uh, the worship team comes up to close us in song? Yes, 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 praise God. God, we praise you. We praise you that you are constantly working in the details of our lives. Your providential hand is working all things together for, for your glory, for our good. We thank you, God, that, that, that the pains that we walk through in our lives are not without a purpose. God, you are always working. And God, we understand, we understand in, in, in some small way what it's like to be in Joseph's shoes, maybe not the same circumstances, but we know what it's like to feel pain and not know what you're doing. But God, we thank you that because of Joseph's life and, and so many others in the scriptures, we know that you are working. And God, I pray that you would help us to cling to that truth in the midst of our pains. God, I pray that as we've already sung today that you would help us to be grateful in all the circumstances of our lives because we know that you are accomplishing your purposes. God, we love you and we thank you that there's no greater evidence of this 
than the life of your son, Jesus. Betrayed by his friend, Judas. You knew it would happen. (laughs) You knew it would happen, and yet on that night you got down and you washed his feet. God, I pray that you would help us to live that way. That no matter what is going on in our lives, that we would continue to have the heart that wants to love and to serve those around us, even those who hurt us. Oh, to be more like your son, Jesus. God, we pray for that in our lives. Would you continue to to pour out your spirit upon our lives, helping us to become the men and the women that you want us to be and help us to continue to praise you through the process. We praise these things in Jesus' name, amen.